The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of God for the people of God. I was pretty sure fame could change everything. I yearned for it more than any other person on the face of the planet. I needed it. I was sure it was the only thing that could fix me. I was certain of it, but the magic never lasts. Whatever holes you are filling seem to keep coming back up. It's like whack-a-mole. Maybe because I was trying to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. These words are from the late Matthew Perry from Friends. And Matthew Perry is describing the same thing King Solomon described in the book of Ecclesiastes. God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Or as St. Augustine famously said, you have created created us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Or as Soren Kierkegaard said, sin is building your identity on anything but God. Or to go back to the words of Matthew Perry, We're all trying to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. The philosopher Charles Taylor describes this problem as the problem of a fragile identity. Fragile identity. Fragile identity is constantly asking, where is my worth coming from? A fragile identity makes me a sucker for marketers. If I just have this or that thing, 
If I just lived in this or that zip code, if my kids went to just this or that school, then everything would be okay. The fragile identity makes me create exclusive communities of people who only think like me and look like me because if you're different than me, my identity is too fragile to stand up against the pressure of someone thinking differently than me. And so trying to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing leads to a fragile identity. And our passage this morning provides the only remedy for a fragile identity. What every human being needs is not a fragile identity, but a secure identity. And being united with Christ, the subject of our passage this morning, is the only way to receive a secure identity. See, the first time an active verb appears in our passage isn't until verse 5. There we read, God made us alive together with Christ. Then in verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ. Three times, Paul tells the Ephesians that they are with Christ. And this is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to have a secure identity. And all this language of being with Christ is language that Christians for centuries, for millennia, have used to describe this idea of union with Christ. And I need you to hear this. A Christian is someone who has been united with Christ. In other words, what's true of Jesus is true of you. Your death or his death has become your death. His life has become your life. And all the saving benefits of Christ come to the Christian because he or she is united with Christ. And theologians throughout the ages have called union with Christ the web that holds all the doctrines of grace together. Justification, sanctification, redemption, adoption, forgiveness. All of these are held together because we are united with Christ. Calvin called union with Christ the highest degree of importance. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, being in Christ and united with him is the fundamental constitution of a Christian. And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, I want you to walk out of these doors with more joy and awe because you are united with Christ than when you walked into these doors. And if you're not a Christian, I hope that you're bothered and provoked in the right kinds of ways, that you begin to want what's being freely offered in Christ. See, here's the plan for this morning. I want to talk to you about union with Christ in three movements. What life was like before union with Christ, how one becomes united with Christ, and what life looks like united with Christ. Or to put it more succinctly, before, how, now what? Before, how, and then now what? So first, before. Before you have been united with Christ, you are dead and doomed. And you were dead in your trespasses, verse 1, and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice Paul says to the Ephesians that they were dead. I mean, what does he mean there? If you're listening or reading this, how can Paul say that you're dead? 
mean, back in the Garden of Eden, God told the first humans that if they were to eat from the tree, that they would surely die. Literally, the Genesis text says that they would die, die, double death. And what happened on that day when they ate of the tree? Did they die? Well, not in a physical sense, but they were cast out of the garden away from the presence of God. And in this sense, the first humans did die. And this is the consistent theology of death all throughout the Bible. While there is, yes, physical death, there is a death that is deeper, an existence apart from God's life-giving presence that is far worse. And this isn't a death where there's like a little spiritual flicker still left on the heart machine. No, you're flatlined. You're toast. This is a death that is cut off from the life of God, unable to do anything about it. And so the, the picture is bleak. And rightly so. I mean, Paul doesn't hold anything back. I mean, some of you can remember what life was like apart from being united with Christ. Some of you carry regret and shame for your past. But God does not remind you of your past to produce shame. He reminds you of your past to point you to his grace. And you need to know that in Christ, your past has been redeemed. Your past no longer defines you. The spirit has more for you. And the Holy Spirit wants to give you life and life to the full. Life that is truly life. But others of us can't remember really what life was like apart from union with Christ. You've just kind of always been a Christian. And we might be tempted to think that Paul here is just talking about those evil pagans out there. Those irreligious dead people. They're the ones that are dead in sin. But not so fast. Paul flips the tables here. In verse 3, he includes himself in the group of people who are dead in trespasses and sins, among whom we, notice the we, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is including himself in this group. See, if you're not familiar with the story, the Apostle Paul had a very religious background. He read his Bible all the time. He gathered regularly with God's people. He was a moral person. But even Paul says that he lived in the passions of his flesh. Even Paul says that apart from Christ, even his good morals make him a child of wrath. Paul is saying that you can be a part of a biblically rich church-going environment and still have something deep inside of you that is bent towards sin and in a state of death. Paul was religious, but dead. And here's what I need you to understand. The irreligious dead and the religious dead can't fix things. And some of you are religiously dead. And the Spirit of God has more for you. Dead people don't decide. Dead people don't determine. Dead people are, are doomed. And when we are dead in trespasses in sin, the best thing we can do is try to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. And the Spirit 
wants us to see the bad news. And in many ways, the bad news makes the good news better. Like experiencing negative 30 degrees and then thinking 40 degrees is like Hawaii. (laughs) Just a little gospel-centered weather for you. (laughs) But praise be to God that he doesn't idly stand by. This leads us to our second point, how we are united with Christ. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Everything we read from verse 4 till the end is all based and rooted in God's rich mercy. God's motivation to save sinners is not because there's something attractive or impressive in us. The saving action of God is all predicated on his character, his grace, his abundant, rich mercy. And God loves to show mercy. God can't help himself. Adam and Eve, they sin in the garden. Yes, they're cast out of his presence, but he shows them mercy. He covers their shame. Abraham pawns off his wife, not once, but twice, then demonstrates all this lack of faith, that whole Hagar thing, and God still shows him mercy. David commits murder and adultery. God shows him mercy. Jonah preaches the worst sermon in human history. Thousands get converted, and then Jonah whines and throws this pity party and says, God, I knew you were gracious. I knew you would show mercy. Because God can't help himself. It's in his nature. He's rich in mercy. He wants to save. But let me ask you a question. What does it mean to be saved? Paul tells us, I know I mentioned this in the beginning, in the opening, but I think it's worth drilling down again. There's three verbs Paul uses here to describe what it means to be saved. Made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him, with Christ. God has taken dead and doomed sinners and makes them alive with Christ. We're made alive with him. We're raised up with him. We are seated with him. But what does that even mean? I mean, you're sitting here in a halfway decent, comfy, mid-century chair in Omaha, Nebraska. See, one of the greatest tragedies is for a Christian to forget their union with Christ. It leads to a whole host of problems, but the top of the list is chasing fragile identities and attempting to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. And don't think this doesn't happen. Christians have spiritual amnesia. We're prone to forget our union with Christ, and when we have spiritual amnesia, the circumstances of our lives loom large, and God seems small. I'm not totally sure about the 
mental or emotional state that you walked into these doors with. But your life might not feel like you're seated and raised with Christ. Your life might feel like chaos and stress and worry and confusion. Anything but seated with Christ. And the problems that you're facing feel massive. The argument you just had that's unresolved looms large. As one writer puts it, your problems are big, therefore your view of God is small. But this is why we need the truth of God's word, something outside of us to recalibrate our mental maps of reality. Friends, God's word is reality. And God's word declares to you today that you as a Christian are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You're raised up. And with the authority of Christ and his word, you no longer have to feel like you have to stare in despair at whatever difficulty feels so massive. But because you are united with Christ, you no longer look at your circumstances as if they are massive and God is small. You look down on your circumstances with the authority of Christ and the vantage point of heaven. Because the truest thing about you, Christian, is your identity is secure with him in heavenly places. Salvation is union with Christ. His life has become your life. His identity has become your secure identity. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And how does this happen? How does union with Christ occur? Well, union with Christ happens by grace through faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Verse 8. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Herman Bobbing says, grace is God's voluntary, unrestrained, unmerited favor toward guilty sinners, granting them justification in life instead of the penalty of death, which they deserve. Voluntary. God is not obligated. He wants to give grace. Unrestrained. God is not holding anything back. He gives his best. God can't help himself. And salvation is a free gift to be received by faith. But what is faith? Christians use that word all the time. I have faith in Jesus. My faith is really important to me. And people who claim no allegiance to Jesus use that word as well. I have faith that my favorite team is going to win or I'm not a person of faith. So what is Christian faith? I've heard it explained this way, that we actually need two English words to capture this one biblical word for faith. Belief and trust. See, in one sense, biblical faith means that we believe certain things to be true. Christians believe God is triune. Christians believe Christ died and rose again. Christians believe that Christ is the only way for salvation. Faith means that we believe certain things to be true. And biblical faith means we trust. 
When I say I trust Cheyenne with my whole life, my actions need to reflect that. If you don't trust a person, your actions reflect that as well. See, biblical faith means entrusting your whole life to Jesus because he has the best thing you have got going. Let me, let me show you what I mean. I've heard this illustration used in multiple settings, but I still think it's extremely helpful. This man is Charles Blondin. About 300 times, Blondin crossed the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Hundreds upon hundreds of people would come to watch, and one time, Blondin asked the crowd if anyone thought that he could cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope while pushing a wheelbarrow. Everyone was like, yeah, of course, why not? Then Blondin asked, do you think I could push this wheelbarrow with someone in it as I cross the Niagara Falls? Of course, you can totally do that. Then Blondin asked, any volunteers? (laughs) Crickets. It turns out they didn't believe in Blondin as much as they said they did. And I think you get the point. Faith is not only believing in God. Faith is climbing into the wheelbarrow of the finished work of Christ and staking your whole life on him. And some of you need to get into the wheelbarrow for the very first time. You've been doing church for a long time, but you've never actually decided to trust in Jesus. You've never actually made a decision to trust him. You've never put a stake in the ground. You're still trying to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. But the Spirit of God has more for you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The Holy Spirit has more for all of us. Which leads to our third point here. Union with Christ is a free gift, but what happens next? What now? We've looked at, number one, life before union with Christ. We've looked at, number two, how one becomes united with Christ by grace through faith. But now, now what? What does life look like now that we've been united with Christ? New Testament scholar John Barclay says, God's grace is unconditioned, but not unconditional. Now, this might sound strange, so let me explain. God's grace is a free gift. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. God's grace is unconditioned, meaning that there are no prior conditions or prerequisites one needs to meet. Salvation is a free gift of God's immeasurable grace. You don't clean yourself up and and then God saves you. No, God makes the first move. Grace is unconditioned. But God's grace is not unconditional, meaning that when one becomes a Christian by grace, this doesn't mean, oh, I can just kind of go do whatever I want. 
I'm not going to the bad place now. It doesn't matter what I do with my life. No, rather, God's grace is conditional in that it evokes or is meant to evoke a response. See, in our modern world, the idea of a gift with no strings attached, an unconditional gift, is often seen as the purest form of a gift. But actually, this idea of a pure gift with no conditions is a relatively modern idea. It's not how Paul or the earliest Christians would have thought of gifts. In Paul's day, and throughout actually most of human history, the giving of a gift had expectations attached to it. There was an expectation of reciprocity. Giving a gift away was was a way of building community and strengthening social bonds. In other words, the giving of a gift, in this case salvation, all of salvation, even your faith is a gift, does something, evokes something, changes something in the person receiving the gift. And we see this in our passage. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not united with Christ by our good works, but we are united with Christ for good works. Our good works don't save us, but our good works are essential. Our good works demonstrate that we have rightly responded to the free gift of God's grace. Grace changes us to do good works. And if some of you think this idea of good works being essential is a little anti-grace or even a little anti-Protestant, let's just look at the two of the great reformers themselves. Calvin, those who are justified by true faith prove their justification by obedience and good works not by a bare and imaginary semblance of faith. Luther, if good works do not follow, then faith is false and not true. But I need you to see that our good works are meant to be rooted in our union with Christ. Paul says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Christ. This is stock language for how the New Testament speaks of union with Christ. Those two words together, in Christ, are arguably the center of Paul's theology. They appear over 150 times in his letters. And because you are united with Christ, we are his workmanship, created for good works. And you need to grasp that you are God's workmanship in Christ. Why? Because knowing we are God's workmanship, united with him, it frees us from the tyrannical loop of self-doubt and self-despair. See, in verses 1 and 2, Paul had us remembering that we were dead in the grave, flatlined, nothing. And it's all because of God's grace. We are no longer flatlined. We've been made alive. We are united with him, set free and secure. I think many of us are good up until this point. 
We've trusted God for our salvation in the sense that we've been freed from sin and judgment. We've been forgiven. But then there's the daily living out your union with Christ. And this is where many people struggle. I know that I'm united with Christ, but I'm still struggling. If I'm honest, I'm still tempted to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. And I think this temptation comes out in at least two ways. The first of which I'll call the achievement temptation. It goes something like this. I ought to be further along by now. I ought to have achieved this or that thing by now. I'm not as far ahead in life as I was hoping to be, as I want to be. The field goal posts just keep moving. Or I ought to be a better person by now. Like, why am I still getting angry? Why am I still anxious? Why am I not changing? What, what, what's wrong with me? And along with this temptation comes the thought, I can't actually be honest about where I'm really at. If people see that I really do struggle, people will think less of me and probably less of God. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Your honesty demonstrates that God is as rich in mercy as he claims to be. Because God can't help himself. My union with Christ reminds me that I am his. My identity is secure, not fragile. I'm free to be honest. We are God's workmanship, united with Christ. And we're free to stop trying to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. Our union with Christ sets us free. But if some of us are tempted with this thought of I ought to be better or I ought to have achieved this or that by now, others of us face a different temptation. I'll call this the regret or the what if temptation. What if I had made a different choice back then? What if the path I'm on in life is just a grand concession? It's just plan B or plan C or even further down the, down the line. What if I had made a different choice at that crucial juncture in my life? Why did we make the decision to you fill in the blank? What if? Wouldn't my life be better now? And so regret creeps in. And it's tempting to feel like you're just a pinball bouncing around the chaos machine that is 2024. But what if? What if the bumping around is just the bumpers of your union with Christ because you are his divine workmanship? The derailments of your life do not surprise God. And the moment I say that, many of you feel like your life has gone off course. 
But underneath all of the derailments and disappointments are the arms of a loving father conspiring for your good and for his glory. You are united with him. I've been rereading recently Mere Christianity, and I came across this passage. You'll see how it fits as I read it. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking about the house in a way that, a, that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Your life might feel like it's in the demo phase. But what if it's actually an evidence of God's grace that your life right now feels like a bad remodel? What if instead of believing that God has abandoned you, God is actually present at work? You're his workmanship, even through the demos of life. And Jesus knows how to handle a bruised reed. He knows how to ignite the barely existent wick of your faith. He knows how to restore your soul. And the spirit taking what is dead and bringing it to life is not just a story he did in your past a decade or two or three or four ago. It's the same enlivening spirit that's at work right now and wants to continue that work even in this room. Because you are his workmanship, united with him. Centuries before the Apostle Paul, the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, was given a vision of a valley of dead bones. A valley full of death. And a question was asked in that moment, can these bones live? And do you know what happens next? God says, I will send my spirit into these dead bones and you will come to life. And the only way a pile of dead bones comes to life is by a move of God's spirit. And the only way the rubble and demo of your lives is renewed and alivened is because of a move of God's spirit. And this is what God is up to. This is what God wants to do. God can't help himself. It's his joy to sweep through and awaken and aliven dead hearts. It's what the Spirit has been doing for millennia. It's what God's Spirit is doing right now in this room. Taking what is dead and bringing life that is truly life. Do you believe that? Do you trust that this is what Jesus is doing? 
Because remember, God can't help himself. Your life might feel like a pile of rubble, a pile of dead bones. Heck, your morning might, have, might feel like a pile of rubble. But God's word to you is grace, grace over the, power, over the rubble of your life. God's spirit breathes life where there is death. God's spirit softens hearts and brings what is dead to life and satisfies our deepest longings. You are united with him. You are secure. His spirit is at work right here, right now. Taking what was once dead and bringing life that is truly life. So spirit of God, we ask. We ask that you would continue that work in our own lives personally and in our community? Would you take the brokenness and the pain and the hurt and the rubble of our lives and would you, Holy Spirit, breathe life where there is death? Lord, forgive us for all the ways we seek to earn your love and affection, all the ways that we seek to build an identity for ourselves. Spirit, would you come and convict and comfort. May your presence intersect with the pain of our lives this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Help us to turn to you with expectation and hope. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.